Welcome to Traif, a debatably Jewish podcast. Dovid, this is Zeyar Hayes in the studio. What? Uh, that was my humble attempt at Yiddish. Um, for any of our listeners who understand the language, I don't know if I gendered studio correctly, uh, dare or d. Also, I don't know if studio is the right word in Yiddish. So uh, let us know. Wait, what did you say? Es ist sehr heiß in der no, no, Studio. In English, what did you say in English? Oh, I said it's very hot in the studio. That's correct, yeah. Yes. I think that there is another major issue we need to address, David. Oh, what's that? It's the issue that's been pressing on the minds of most listeners, all 12 of them, throughout the last two weeks. And it's about the question of universes. What universe are you in? I hesitate to answer this question because I have a feeling I know you're going with this. Yes. Is it an A universe or an E universe? Sam, there's no multiple universe scenarios here. It's only one. I don't think I can roll my eyes to the degree where it would be picked up by the microphone, so you should probably explain what you're talking about. Basically, the children's book that some of us grew up reading called the Berenstain Bears, have been recently revealed to have a different spelling. It's only been recently revealed to people who never really paid attention to the spelling to begin with. It was spelled Berenstain Bears, like AI. This was a bit unusual for those of us who grew up in the Jewish community and aren't used to seeing Berenstain spelled this way, but some people just... Like, let, it, let it be known that vast swaths of the internet, as well as every person I've polled uh, in my very scientific individual polling system, have all agreed that they recall the Berenstain Bears written Berenstain Bears with an E, and the internet just backs up all that information. Yeah. Regardless of this anecdotal information, there are uh, quite a few books, there's a television show, all of which spells it very clearly. Yes, it is very likely that we all exist in two universes. I would like everyone to know that at Trave Podcast, we did the proper research. Stan Berenstein is in fact Jewish. Jan Berenstein is not Jewish. They both grew up in West Philadelphia. The child, the offspring of the Berenstein Bear parents, now writes Christian books, apparently. So life comes at you fast. David, I think this is actually like a dividing point in, in, in our podcast. That is correct, but I don't want to talk about this anymore. Uh, who do we have on this show today, Sam? Rachel Zellers is coming onto the show to talk about the petition that she has started to have the N-word removed from about 12 or 13 natural sites in Quebec. We're also going to talk about police violence in Quebec and have a very brief discussion about some developments in terms of electoral politics. So we don't want to go too deep into the world of electoral politics. In fact, we had made a decision to try to stay away from this as much as possible. But there have been a few developments that we want to share with you about the world of electoral politics in Canada and how it pertains to the Jewish community. Yes, I had proposed doing a five-minute segment on how much Bernie Sanders sounds like Larry David, but David nixed it. So there's been a federal election called in Canada. The party in power, the Conservative Party in Canada, led by Stephen Harper, have announced an election happening in October, and we now find ourselves in the midst of an election campaign. The same day that Harper announced the election, he spent his afternoon in Montreal at the Jewish Y for a pro-conservative rally. A lot of folks have written about the political significance of Harper having his one of his first rallies at the Jewish Y in Montreal. We're not going to really go into too much detail. Um, and so, yeah, there was a big rally, about 700 people at the Jewish Y. We were not allowed in, naturally. Uh, it was a kind of reserve-only Evite-type situation. So Janice Arnold of the Canadian Jewish News was present at that event and gave us the overview of what he spoke about. 
uh, our government not backing down. We're going to be strong against the terrorists. We love Israel. We have a strong economy. That was the gist of his message. Yeah. So shortly before Harper's visit, Justin Trudeau, the leader of the Liberal Party, gave a similar speech at a synagogue in the Jewish neighborhood of Cote St. Luke in Montreal. Yes, that is, in fact, the synagogue where I was bar mitzvahed, uh, oh, well. Shara Zion. Uh, the other great familial Sam tie-in here is that my great uncle is in the photo next to Justin Trudeau in the Canadian Jewish News. What, really? Yes. Wait, who's your great uncle? A former CJAD 800 reporter and Liberal Party operative. Oh, wow. Yes. So he's in that photo, cjn.com. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, so Trudeau was essentially giving the same speech as Harper. There is a bit of a difference in terms of his stance on the nuclear deal with Iran, but even then, it's a bit of a minute difference between the positions on these two parties here. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the election with regards to Israel in the last couple of weeks has just been a game of catch-up between the, the two parties, the liberals and NDP, running after the conservatives to assert how pro-Israel they are yeah. and how much they want to fearmonger around Iran. Yeah, and the NDP is making a lot of progress, catching up pretty fast. Over the last few months, they've actually denied several candidates that were approved by their local riding associations, and then more recently terminated the candidacy of Morgan Wielden, who is a candidate in the riding of Kings Hanson, Nova Scotia, for a Facebook post he made in 2014, where he said, one could argue that Israel's intention was always to ethnically cleanse the region. There are direct quotations proving this to be the case. Guess we just sweep that under the rug. A minority of Palestinians are bombing buses in response to a calculated effort to commit a war crime. Now, this appeared on a conservative website that was attacking NDP candidates for things they'd said in the past. And as a result, the NDP executive has terminated him as a candidate. Now, this happens with the same context as two other candidates being terminated or losing their NDP-ness. A fellow in Nunavut called Jerry Nantain and Syed Haider Ali in Edmonton, Alberta. Both of them basically just wrote on Facebook as well. And this isn't brand new information. This was happening last year as well. Uh, Paul Manley was running for the Nanaimo Lady Smith riding in BC. Uh, his father, Jim Manley, a former NDP MP, went on the boat to attempt to break the naval blockade on Gaza. It was attempted by the IDF. As a result of this and his son's outspokenness at the time, the NDP national exec overruled the writing association to deny his candidacy as well. Yeah, so clearly all three political parties chart a fairly narrow path when it comes to Palestine. I mean, for people who've listened, I assume that some some of you have read the, the kind of petitions and the posts uh, challenging the NDP on their position on Palestine. And there's a part of me that feels a little bit weird about it in the sense that, I mean, generally the question of elections and pushing political parties in a direction is is up for debate. But also, I don't think this is the only surprising position that the NDP has. There's a way in which lefties will be like, this is the deciding issue. And if the NDP's position was different on Palestine, it'd be different on other things. And quite honestly, their politics are pretty shaky on a lot of grounds. And I question maybe the political value of focusing explicitly on a pretty soft liberal Zionist two-state argument. Yeah, and I think among those people, there tends to be a bit of a dilution in terms of an anti-colonial politic. And I think if we are genuine in our commitment to opposing colonialism, we have to understand the NDP as a colonial party, as a party that, if elected, would be governing an occupation here and would be supporting an occupation in Palestine. Earlier this month marked the seven-year anniversary of Freddy Villanueva's murder by the Montreal police. Freddy was in a park with his brother in Montreal North at the time and neither officer who shot him has faced any sanction. 
Yeah, so the same week that this anniversary took place, there is reporting in the Montreal Gazette that a 25-year-old black woman, Majdza Philip, who was at a concert at the Olympia Theater, was a recipient of racist police violence from a Montreal police officer who broke her arm, which led to quite a few complications and ongoing medical procedures. We're actually going to play a short clip from the Montreal Gazette website that has an interview with Majdza Philip and her mother. She, she comes from a family of five, and I have two boys, and I always stated, we always, you know, put the emphasis on the boys to be aware and to be more careful when they go out. But I realize now today that we're all at risk. Just being black is a risk as you go about your daily life. Some days I, I almost feel like, you know, I feel like I'm getting better and things are changing. And then I'll look in the mirror and I'll see my scar and it just all comes back to me and I just feel extremely, I'm just, I'm nervous a lot. I have a lot of anxiety. Um, it's definitely made me feel different in my skin. I don't look at the world the same anymore. I'm very fearful of police officers and I, I'm just a lot more aware of the injustice that happens in the world that we live in. And I think, I don't know if my life will be the same, but I, I'm definitely getting ready for a really long battle. My life is completely altered. Six months ago, Montreal police chief Marc Parent was on CBC Daybreak and effectively said point blank that the SPVM, the Montreal police, have a racial profiling problem. This came in response to a complaint lodged by Freddie James, who had complained about being stopped while driving his car for no reason. Yeah, we're bringing this up because it's very clear that seven years after Freddie Villanueva's murder, nothing has changed in Montreal in regards to institutional police violence against black people. At the event marking the seven-year anniversary of Freddie's murder, a mural was put up that said, R.I.P. Freddie, and within hours, the city had hired people to take it down. And so while people in the community are invested in continuing his memory and addressing these problems, it doesn't seem like there's a willing partner in the government. So this is slowly becoming our most consistent segment. It's called Shkoyach. Most popular segment. Most popular and consistent, which is important. Yeah, just for any new listeners, Shkoyach is a Yiddish word which generally revolves around some kind of like props or giving congratulations to. So every two weeks, uh, the two of us try and give our Shkoyachs for the week. David, what do you have for us today? Um, so my Shkoyach of the week goes to Mark Adler, who is an sitting MP for the Conservative Party in the Toronto area who's running for re-election in the current federal campaign. Apologies to our listeners. I know we said that we wouldn't talk anymore about electoral politics. This is the only other little small dive in that we'll do. Um, who on a uh, re-election banner at his campaign office on Bathurst Street, he had a sign that mentioned that he is a son of a Holocaust survivor. Now, if you go to his website, well, it actually expands on this. And it says that he is the only sitting MP to be the direct descendant of a Holocaust survivor, which on the face of it is is a pretty important thing. I think a very meaningful thing for a lot of people in the Jewish community to see that sort of representation. But the unfortunate fact is that Raymond Falco, who served as a Montreal area liberal MP from 1997 to 2011, is actually the first sitting MP oh, whoa. whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And Falco said she found it disgusting for Adler to use the Holocaust in this way for personal ends. In fact, she said she never publicized her status as a child of Holocaust survivors because she thought it would be crass to do so and accuse Adler of profiting from it. One second. I think it's possible that he could run 
on the ticket that he's the first descendant of Holocaust surviving parents to publicly announce that he's the descendant of <laughs> Holocaust surviving parents. Well, he actually changed his website after the Canadian Jewish News put out an article about this. He removed all mentions in his biography to being the first child of Holocaust survivors to be elected as an MP. So there's no longer any reference to that? Nope, it's all gone. It's been so wiped. He's just erasing his genealogy. Well, he is erasing references to the incorrect fact that he was the first elected MP to be the son of a Holocaust. That's so weird. So, shkoyach to Mr. Adler for taking exploitation of the Holocaust to new levels. Now, what do you have this week, Sam? Mine's not very uplifting either, unfortunately. We're on a little, we're a bleaker shkoyach today. My shkoyach goes to the translation of an article that was written in 1915 in Yiddish. So, the foreword occasionally translates old texts or old articles that were written in the foreword and this is one that was written by Abe Kahan. Now Abe Kahan I don't want to co-sign entirely. He went from being a somewhat solid 1880s style anarchist to a social democrat pretty quickly over 30 years. This was an article written in 1915 following the lynching of Leo Frank. Did you see this article David? I did. I saw that in the foreword website. Two things that really stuck out for me and again beyond not co-signing Abe Kahan I think the article itself is a little sketchy. There's a very strong civilizational push in his argument. Very Eurocentric. Yeah, that was not unusual for reporting in the forward at that time, or even in a lot of ways today. Yeah. But the two points that I found interesting in that piece, while he's commenting on Leo Frank, I think I should just mention quickly, for those who don't know, Leo Frank was a Jew who was living in Georgia. He was ripped out of the, a prison cell that he was being held in by about 200 people and lynched. It's a seminal moment in American Jewish history. But two parts in the article that I found interesting was one, Kahan notes the racial underpinnings of the United States and argues that no justice can ever be had under a system that's created on a racist foundation. And I think the other interesting point was he basically said we should have we should expect nothing from the police. The police are the 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 enforcers of this racist state and we should not expect a just outcome from any inquiry into the lynching of Leo Frank. For a, a major figure in the four to be writing these things in a Jewish publication is fairly revealing about what was acceptable and what was ideology at that time. So is your Shkoyach going to the foreword for reprinting this? or, or what, what's? <laughs> I mean, shout out should go to Hannah Polak, who actually translated it. So I guess to her, um, whoever had the idea of translating older texts into English and republish and reprinting them on the website, I will give Shkoyach to the unnamed person at the newspaper who chose to do that. Yeah, I have, I have to, I did see this on the Ford website and I have to be honest that my feeling, my feel, I felt a little weird about seeing it there. One thing we should tell our listeners who don't regularly read the Ford is they had a great series recently highlighting the voices of Jews of color in the various Jewish communities called the Jews in Color series. And the thing is outside of that, the Ford's coverage tends to really focus and prioritize on Ashkenazi Jewish voices, on white Jews, the white Jewish experience in America. And there's not a lot of coverage on things about race in general. And to see an article about commemorating this instance of lynching against, you know, an Ashkenazi Jewish man, it just felt a little weird considering that there's not actually much reporting in the foreword highlighting the current realities of anti-Black racism in the United States today. So it's kind of like in place of actually reckoning with our place as white Jews in a current structure that continues to destroy, uh, you know, the bodies of black, black people through institutional racism, through police violence and other ways. We're actually going to look back and commemorate this time that we were targeted. You know, like, I feel like that's actually to me, I don't know, to me, it fits into this thing that the white Jewish community likes to do a lot. I think when viewed within that context or within that lens, it's dangerous, just as in an in an ideal world where 
um, the forward covered things better. And the Jewish, the institutional Jewish community was not so embedded in the white supremacy. I think there's value in this kind of stuff. But yes, entirely, if this isn't done within a broader change of how we understand the community and how we understand our place in North America, then it's dangerous to just be relying on these old militant Jewish histories. Yeah, because I think it actually is a really important incident that we should be talking about and thinking about and drawing conclusions from. And hopefully those conclusions for people listening, for people within the Jewish community, specifically European-descended white Jews, can be to understand the possibilities and places where there can be relationships of solidarity and alliance made with people uh, who are resisting white supremacy, black people, indigenous people, in ways that we no longer are in North America. Earlier this month, the CBC reported that the Quebec Toponymy Commission was considering changing 11 names to natural sites to formally remove the use of the N-word. In response, Rachel Zellers created a petition calling for the Quebec government to remove all use of the N-word from official sites and acknowledge the role of this term in the history and present reality of anti-Black racism in Quebec. So to talk about this in more detail, we're now joined by Rachel Zellers. Uh, Rachel has worked as an attorney and an educator and is now a PhD candidate whose work focuses on the history of anti-Black racism in the Canadian and Quebec school systems. She's a founding member of the Third Eye Collective, the first organization in Montreal specifically dedicated to supporting Black women who are survivors of intimate violence and is the mother of three fantastic children. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Rachel. Mm, Thanks for having me, guys. We were wondering if you could just start off by talking a little bit about the petition and the campaign that you have going on right now. Sure. So um, I I came across this story on CBC on August 8th um, during just a a break of reading my news before I head to bed. And I thought it was satirical, of course, like from The Onion. Um, And of course, it was not satirical. And I um, went to bed that night and it was literally the first thing that I thought of the next morning when I woke up. And uh, I started writing, as I am right now, and I take a break at noon, and I decided to use that noon break to draft up what became the bones of this petition uh, in an hour, very quickly. Um, And then I sent it off to a friend of mine who's a scholar on Quebec, on the history of nationalism and anti-black racism. And then I sent it again to a committee member who is the same kind of scholar, just to verify my facts and make sure that I wasn't missing something uh, really important about how uh, offensive and, sh- and shocking the story and the name sites were. Um, and I really expected to throw it up online and like ping all of you and my friends and have everybody sign it and like 200 people. But we had 200 signatures within the first hour and a half. And that was enough to communicate to me that, oh, wow, maybe this is could and gain some steam. I think today we're at about 1,800 signatures. And the, the most interesting parts of the last week for me has been watching the way that all of the media outlets locally and nationally have picked up on this story and really are intent on reporting it and following up on it and even doing longer uh, reportings on this story. So, so the, the petition is really gaining some steam. Yeah, I, I read your uh, op-ed in the Gazette this morning, actually, that was published, uh, I think, yesterday? Yes, last night. <laughs> so I, I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail, because the article itself referenced a bit of a history in Quebec and Canada of anti-Black racism. But if you can maybe tell us a bit about the history in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels important for me to start with the Underground Railroad, because that is consistently the 
the historical narrative pertaining to black culture in Canada that's taught in, in our public schooling systems nationally and here as well. One of the things that felt very important to start that story with was how easy it is to create this counter-narrative and a counter-narrative that has not been told in this country about the thousands of black enslaved who really risked everything to journey north to cross the border with two particular hopes. The, the, the first was the hope of freedom of the, the right to exist outside of bondage. And the second, of course, which is my area of research at McGill, is the expectation that their children would be accepted into our public schooling system, which, you know, coincidentally was being created at the same time that the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 brought thousands of slaves north. So that, that history felt really important for me to write a little bit about because upon arrival, overwhelmingly, black slaves or newly freed black people were met with a virulent white Canadian racism, both in the context of public schooling and outside of that context as well. Here in Quebec, we know probably least of all, there have been a number of important scholars like Dr. Dorothy Williams, who's the head of the Black Community Resource Center in Côte de Neige, who has published widely on the history of Montreal. And what we do know is that we have uh, very similar de facto patterns of segregation and exclusion throughout the history of our public schools here in Quebec. And we also know by way of these 11 name sites that are still existing in Quebec really how much we don't know. The two sites that we do know a bit about are Nigger Rock in St. Armand and Nigger Rapids in Bouchette. And what we do know is that at least two, in the case of Nigger Rock, scores of black enslaved perished at this site. And the province, the Toponymy Commission, and the locals have been insistent on preserving the names Nigger Rapids and Nigger Rock attached to these sites. So that's a little bit about what we know. In terms of those two particular sites, could you maybe talk a bit about the significance of those sites within Quebec, like where those names came from? <laughs> sure. So the rapids in Bouchette were named apparently in 1912. This is uh, this information is available on the Toponymy Commission website. The name was given in 1912 when uh, a priest was passing by and found a black couple floating in the water there. It's not clear who this couple is, at least not on the Toponymy Commission. Um, Marcel Trudel also in his Dictionnaire has documented this, uh, this history, but has not named the name of the couple, as far as I've been able to tell. And what we know is that this priest assigned this name after blessing and burying these two bodies, named the rapids there, and that the name, I think, you know, locally was given the name Nigger Rapids for some time, and then at some point the Toponymy Commission chose the word Neg instead of Nigger as the official name. But my argument in the petition, of course, is that both names are equally offensive. What we know about Nigger Rock in St. Armand, which is just an hour south of, um, of Montreal, resting along the Vermont border, what we know about that site that's tremendously important is that that site serves as the only graveyard we have found to date that houses the bodies and bones of black enslaved in this entire country. And so Hank Avery, a local 
black educator there has been fighting for decades now to preserve the history of this place and to also name change this location to Slave Rock. He has been met with resistance during those, um, during those decades. Reading the article and the petition, it seems like you take a little bit of a step to preempt possible critiques from white Quebecers as far as the ways in which criticism of Quebec on questions of race are often pushed away as far as like a rest of Canada complaint. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if that was intentional. You wrote, and uniquely mm-hmm. Quebec. One of the things that I knew would happen was that from the experience I had last year when I wrote an editorial on blackface and the resistance from French Quebecers to acknowledge the history and real problematic nature of blackface in Quebec, one of the things I knew would be coming was um, this insistence that nigger and the the virulence attached to the term really is an anglophone or an, an American invention and not something that bears the history and tradition of the French in this country or even in its mother colony itself. And so it was important for me to uh, talk about the history of the term nègre in Quebec by invoking Pierre Vallier's work in Le Nègre Blanc, which was the rallying cry and became the rallying cry in the 60s for you know white Quebecers to insist upon their enslavement, their hypothetical or their political enslavement at the hands of the British. And one of the things that a number of scholars, including Daryl LaRue, have written and Sean Mills have written about is how that embodiment, the the use of that term, which really was inspired by black nationalism in the United States and in the Black Panther Party specifically, has served to really erase the histories of black people in this province and other ethnic minorities in this province because it has you know, taken that term and embodied it as, a, as an icon and symbol for the way that the French were treated here at the hands of the British and Anglophones more broadly. So it was important for me to say, well, this is actually what Valier meant and intended by this term. He intended that word to mean nigger. It's the most common invocation that we know, the most common referent that we know of that word here in the province. And you know, and even if you have no history of Quebec and you have no history of Valier's Le Nègre Blanc, you must know that it is the most unequivocally offensive name that's been used for the last 200 years as a descriptor for black people everywhere in North America, right? So it was important for me to lean in with that critique. For people who are listening from outside of Quebec who are part of the Jewish community who may be a bit unfamiliar with the specificities of our context here, um, earlier in the program, we were talking a bit about police violence. We're talking about the anniversary of the murder of Freddy Villanueva that just happened, as well as the continuing racist police violence uh, against Black people across the city. Could you maybe talk a bit about the connection between the use of this term and the persistence of institutional racism within Quebec? You know... That's a really, really great question. You know, I've been thinking about it in the context of history, which is um, the the place I feel more most comfortable swimming and, and dabbling in, I guess. So I, I think of it, you know, if we can look at a year ago, a year and a half ago, when um, the recent flare-up of blackface in the province occurred through the Théâtre Vert, the kind of resistance that black people and white allies were met with 
um, because of the theater's choice to use blackface instead of a real black actor, number one, and given the history of blackface in North America and in Quebec specifically, the kind of resistance that was met by myself and by others who really pushed back against that right, you know, was quite hard. And one of the lessons that I learned during that time was that, you know, French Quebecers, and certainly they're not exclusive in this, but French Quebecers and others have a very shallow understanding of one, their own history, and their history of oppression against black people in this province, but also have an even more shallow history of understanding of the history of black Quebecers and the contributions of black Quebecers in this city. So, you know, that's an indoctrination that really begins in high school. There have been some very interesting scholarly studies done that have analyzed historical texts in, in Quebec in our public schooling systems, both on the French and English side. And one of the things that those two scholarly articles have concluded is that there are particular points of erasure that are intentional, and those points of erasure in public schooling texts here in the province have been supplanted with another version of Quebec history. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I've been really thinking about, you know, where... Where such ignorance starts here really does start in, in, our, in our elementary schools, our middle schools, our high schools. And, you know, one other thing I'll add to this, and this comes from not only having just one of the best advisors ever, but someone who's much more knowledgeable than myself, Dr. Charmaine Nelson. One of the things that she has been insistent about for at least a decade is the need at the undergraduate level and certainly at the master's and graduate level to invest institutionally in black studies, black, black Canadian studies, black Quebecer studies. There's something quite absurd about the fact that black studies has been institutionalized at every major university in the United States since the 1960s and there's not a single program, a degree-bearing program in existence all throughout Canada. So there's something to be said about the kind of historical erasure that we're constantly bumping up against whenever something inflammatory like blackface or the word nigger calls for a response, right? It's, it's a, an overwhelming ignorance on many fronts. So, Rachel, do you see this petition as a part of a short-term or more of a long-term campaign? And also, what are you hoping to see come about? Mm, I'm really glad you've, you've asked that question. I see this petition as a drop in the bucket, just a sparking point, something to create an, enough public awareness, one, and certainly the August 8th story that I referenced earlier that CBC published mentioned that the Toponymy Commission has not moved to change any of these name sites because they have received no public requests or public pressure in any way to acknowledge that these sites were offensive to any people around the site or in Quebec. So the petition is a drop in the bucket and was very intentional in that I wanted to say, okay, well, here's some folks, French and English, who deeply disagree with these name sites that embody the term nigger and neg. So the first thing that the petition asks for is for an immediate removal 
of the words nigger and neg from all of the places in Quebec that are governed by the toponymy commission. This, you know, the second thing that's important for me is that on the toponymy commission's website, there is an official acknowledgement that the words both nigger and neg, specifically in the context of Quebec's history, are terms of debasement used against black people in this province in North America and are unacceptable as any chosen name to a natural site in Quebec. One of the things that you'll find when you land on the Toponymy Commission website is that they have a list of standards to adhere to when they choose names for natural sites throughout Quebec. And so it's important for me that as a point of solidarity for other lakes and rivers and streams that have ethnically offensive names, that that point that they have to adhere to is revised to acknowledge that offensive ethnic and racial names cannot be proper names supported and given by the commission or any official body in Quebec. I guess what I want to say too about this second point is that the petition also calls for a renaming of these sites that currently bear the word nigger and neg to reflect the accurate histories of the black people that either lived and died or both lived and died at the locations that currently bear those names. And I believe that that work, that naming process, has to be done by by black Montrealers, by organizations in existence in this city that support this position but certainly there are historians and black Montrealers who are much more knowledgeable about the history of this place. I'm thinking, obviously, of Dr. Dorothy Williams, as I mentioned earlier, who should be given the charge, if you will, or considered as one of the organizers for considering new names for all of these currently offensively named sites. The third point within the petition is just that the the rapids that is called Nigger or Neg Rapids and Bouchette is immediately changed. I mean, this ties back to the first point, but is immediately named something else that really represents true memorialization of this site where this black couple died. You know, one of the things I've thought so much about when I arrived here 10 years ago, I spent a lot of time walking and biking around the city and you bump into all of these names, right? As an American or a foreigner, you've never heard before, Cartier, Champlain, you know, these are all markers, these bridges, these bodies within the cities are all markers for real human beings who lived and died in Quebec. And so I want the names of these two human beings who died in this river, in these rapids, to be named so that their memory can be carried forward. I see this petition as part of a larger, a larger goal, and this is something that Dr. Charmaine Nelson has spoken about for many, many years, and that is the urgency, the need for black history in Quebec to be institutionalized and black Canadian studies at the undergraduate and graduate levels to be both institutionalized and properly funded through private and public universities in Quebec. So my long-term hope, in addition to renaming these, these sites that, in a way that honors the black dead that are interred and lived around these natural bodies, is also that eventually we can create some real historical change in this province and beyond by institutionalizing black history, black Canadian studies, 
and black Quebecer studies at every level of learning in this country. And just to return to that, or the earlier point there, where can people find the petition? Oh, that's great. So it's on ipetition.com, and it should be very easy to find because it has the word nigger in its title. I don't have the exact site in front of me. Oh, we'll definitely include it in the show notes for the episode Thank so people you. who are listening can click on the link and sign the petition as well. Thank you so much. But thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super grateful, and it's really great to be in conversation about this with you both. Trade Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. Today's episode was recorded at CKUC in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Kanagahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sack Syndrome for the music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Every time I see the word, I'm like, I want to say, like, Sharad Zion. Sharad Zion. Yeah, Sharad Zion. No, no, no. Sharad Zion. What did I say? You say Zion. It's Zion. Zion. Sharad Zion. Just say it quick, Sharad Zion. Sharad Zion. Yeah. Uh, you still say Zion, but whatever. It's, it's fine. Z- oh, Sharad Zion. And now you're going a little too far in the direction of in. Sharad Zion? Yeah, better. Let's just, Zion. Just say it quick. Okay. You could just say Cote St. Luke at a synagogue in Cote St. Luke, and then I could t- say it. Oh, okay. That's good. Workarounds. Yeah, this is good. <laughs>